Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and Minnie. Minnie, how are you this morning? Oh yeah, look, I'm well. As I was saying when I came in, I'm a bit sore. So accountability is a fantastic thing. It means you get things done. Amazing, isn't it? Um, but I joined a gym. I joined a gym. I find gyms actually quite immensely boring. <laughs> yes. I quite immensely enjoy people, however, and yes. also people can be helpful for doing boring things. Yes. I mean, I can do exercise at home, but it's just it's not the same. Anyway, so I've been going the past couple of days, which has been awesome. You know what the best form of exercise is, right? What are you going to say? Cutting firewood. Oh, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Yeah, it's great aerobic exercise. Uh-huh. And when you've finished your exercise, you've got a huge pile of firewood. Yeah, that is quite satisfying. It's, most, it's so satisfying. Except you have no idea. I don't have a fireplace, nor do I need one at this time of the year. <laughs> well, I don't have a fireplace yet. Uh-huh. But I will have one by winter. So if you want some exercise, uh-huh. you can add to my firewood pile. Yes, 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 I see. I'm <laughs> see then, is not boring. Yeah. You are accomplishing something practical. You are getting good exercise, great aerobic exercise, and you are um, well, maybe I don't, not so much to do I with other people. I just don't mind exercise. I'm more – it's more – because gyms you can't – like nothing changes. There's no scenery change. You're not going anywhere. Like, ah, that's terrible. Yeah, it's just you're kind of just inside. The good, the advantage is this. Yes. Sometimes you need to go to a new, new environment to do the work that you need to do. Yes. Because if I'm at home, you can be like, I have all the things at home that normally distract me. That's and if you and if you and if you go to the gym, you've often got other people to motivate you. There yeah. are other people there that are doing gym. You can hang out with other people. You can you can do it as a social exercise, which is more than just you know just I guess cutting a pile of firewood all by yourself, but I'll take the firewood any day. <laughs> Bring it on. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so I found this quite interesting. Researchers at a zoo in Ohio have discovered just a few weeks after the same phenomenon was found to occur in platypuses, bilbies and wombats, so all Australian uh, natives as far as I'm aware, that Tasmanian devils glow under ultraviolet light. That's cool. So, yeah, it's not the whole body. Uh, so it's the skin around their snout, eyes, and inner ears. It absorbs the ultraviolet light and then, um, yeah, appears as a blue visible light, which I think is super cool. That is ridiculously cool. Rem- imagine if they'd have known that back in the day when they first named the Tasmanian devil. Yeah. You're like, yeah, this is definitely this is, this is a glow-in-the-dark creature. It's certainly a devil. Uh-huh. Well, I find it interesting too. So I didn't look heaps into the other ones, but – so for years and years, they've never known or thought that any other Australian mammal or marsupial or whatever would have this. But as I said, platypuses, bilbies and wombats, I want to know, and they don't know, what the purpose is. So, Yeah, definitely. Right? I thought you were, go- I thought you were going to give me the, all of the information as no, to- No, because they don't know. They don't there know. There is why. a reason for this. There would have to be. But is it like, so they're like, oh, is it just happenstance or is it for something particular? No, no. No, no, this is designed this way. I want to know why. Yeah, well, they don't know why, um, but it's. it's I, just, I find it quite interesting because they did. They have known for quite a while that there are some plants, some insects, and some marine life that have this. It's just with all the Australian kind of things that they have. They haven't discovered it before this year. I don't know really what started them testing this. These- so to find that they glow under ultraviolet light shouldn't be hard, right? No, but you just have to decide to start looking for it. Right. Like, 
Yeah. yeah, that was the thing with this, with the Tasmanian Devils. It was their first go. It was their first testing that they're like, oh, look, behold. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it it should, shows. you put it in the right environment, it should just stand out. Yes. It should just glow. Yeah, and so they decided to do it really after, as I said, just a few weeks ago, they discovered in these other things. I don't know why the other people looked at this, except that apparently platypuses are becoming quite endangered. Yes. So it could have something to do with that, that they're just studying it and then, I don't know, something happens to Anyway, they found it out. They found it out. they don't know what it means. Yeah. Um, Associate Professor Mena Jones from the University of Tasmania says this is an, an inciting insight possibly, into how the Tasmanian devil perceives the world around it. It indicates that Tasmanian devils could potentially have a broader century spectrum than we were aware of previously. So basically they're suggesting that this could be used for a sort of communication. Right. So maybe devils can see it then. We can't see it, but devils can. Yeah, 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 yeah. And maybe the more they glow, maybe the more fertile they are or something like that, or the more hungry they are, yeah. or maybe the more happy they are because they've just got a full belly and there's food in the area. Who knows? Yeah, because we know that some, like birds and stuff, you know, if you have this colour or your, you know, it attracts your mate. So, yeah, there could be something to do with survival. I don't know. I just think it's really cool. It's, it's epically cool. Like there's so much in nature we just don't know about, probably don't understand, don't even think to look for. And then we like slowly find out these things and we're like, whoa, this is amazing. Whereas it really changes the animal's life, not at all if we know or not, except that we want to study it. <laughs> yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, but, yeah, so I just found that quite interesting. And, yeah, I guess hopefully we will hear more in the future about oh, I'm what I'm so they going to discover. tell all my American friends that Tasmanian devils glow in the dark. <laughs> when, I, when I lived in America – People used to ask, oh, whereabouts are you from? And I always say Tasmania, Tasmania. Well, because they have it. no idea where that was. They have a rough idea of where Australia is, but no one in America has any idea where Tasmania is. But they've all seen the Tasmanian Devil cartoon, but they don't actually right. realise that it's a real creature. Right, right. And so then they'd crack <laughs> jokes about the Tasmanian Devil, and I'd be like, no, that's actually a real thing. And they'd be like, what? And their minds would be just bending, and they'd think that Tasmania was somewhere in Africa and that we had elephants. Nice, nice. <laughs> it was so much fun messing with you, I, You could. I remember even just like, what was it, drop bears? Yes. I remember when I was like yes. young and I'd go to summer camps and we'd have some You know they're a thing, right? No, they're not. Yes, they are. They're not. They have discovered they have discovered drop bears. Oh, they're go a, on then. A um an ancient creature that used to live in Australia. You're talking nonsense. No, I'm not. I just don't know at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're stitching me up, but I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's a, it was a carnivorous marsupial that lived in the trees. Oh. Hey. Yeah. That's a bit. It classifies as a drop bear. Yeah, it does. It does. You're not wrong. Lives in the trees. It's yeah. carnivorous. Yeah, but does it drop on you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you um, can believe me, right? Yeah. Well, the because problem is you I'm say ex- so many I'm things. An expert in. Well, you say things with confidence, though. <laughs> like so much confidence. I'm like, this could be real. It could just okay. be. There used to be a carnivorous. Marsupial, Australian marsupial that lived in the trees. Okay, what was it called? That's a fact. I can't remember. Oh, oh, okay. Some critter. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think it should be called Dropus berrius. Dropus berrius. <laughs> <laughs> nice and scientific. So we also have another story. So a man who is a graduate of physics has been using a fairy floss machine to create a festive. 
effective face masks more cheaply and faster than any other currently utilised industrial process. A fairy floss Right? <laughs> okay, this will be the only practical use that a fairy floss machine <laughs> has ever had. Oh, yeah, but come on. Fairy floss has never been about practicality. It's about it being delightfully sugary, useless for you. Completely yeah. useless, utterly useless. Oh, yeah. There's no more useless thing that you could put in your mouth oh, than 100%. fairy floss. 100%. Um, I don't know really how he discovered this. I guess just being a physicist, maybe he just knows the mechanics of how it works and how he can make it work. The short explanation I could find is basically the expensive electrocharged plastic foam filters that characterise a really good mask. Because you know how they say, you know, if you're just putting a cloth over your mouth, it's not actually really protecting the things, it's just putting something over your mouth. But the good ones can pretty much be made uh, just by taking lumps of regular plastic from objects and then melting them in a high temperature and spinning them in the fairy floss machine until it becomes a mesh. And then the mesh, the mesh becomes electrically charged, which is the key aspect that allows them to filter out 95% of particles. So, yeah, old mate is, um, I guess, with his fairy floss machine, just smashing them out. I, yeah, I don't know how it works. I love that people have this sort of knowledge. I'm not going to be the one to find these things out, but I'll be the one to tell you about them. Can you eat these masks? Um, they're from plastic, so I imagine you wouldn't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kind of defeats the purpose anyway. Yes. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so more serious story this morning. We want to talk about, um, we're going to talk about the new standards on uh, alcohol, so national guidelines on uh, alcohol consumption. And they have been significantly changed from the 2009 guidelines. So the 2009 guidelines were pretty radical when they came out. Uh, A lot of people saw them as being rather extreme. Um, But, of course, as research continues, uh, they have changed that now. So now they're saying a maximum of 10 standard drinks per week. Wait, what did it used to be? How's it 14. Okay. Yes. So a maximum of 10 standard drinks per week, a maximum of four standard drinks in one day. And they are not saying that this is safe because the World Health Organization has stated there is no safe uh, amount. amount of alcohol that can be consumed. Uh, so this is the uh, National Health and Medical uh, Research Council. Uh, for people under the age of 18, guess how many standard drinks uh, they can have per week? Less. Yes. Two. A big fat zero. Oh. And, of course, for pregnant women, we've known that forever, big fat zero. So basically the uh, the risks for pregnant women and for under-18s uh, are very, very significant, and they're saying you should not drink this drink whatsoever at all. I find that this is uh, super interesting because the Bible says if, uh, if wine turns into alcohol, don't even look at it. Mm. If it bubbles and moves in the cup, as in if it becomes alcohol – don't even look at it, not, much less touch it or drink it. Uh, the Bible says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In other words, mm. don't go there. You know what, though? I reckon with stuff like this, until you until you have model to you that you cannot drink, like if you're used to it, if you're in the culture of drinking, I think until you have it modelled really well that you don't need it, having good information for most people, isn't going to change what they do. Unfortunately, no. That's the very sad part about it. A lot of people listening to you and I this morning are going to sort of be shrugging their shoulders and continuing on to do their drinking habits just as they were before, mm. uh, in spite of the fact that this is one of the most carcinogenic substances on the planet, so mm. class one carcinogen. But that's just human nature, right? 
Yes. Often we don't make the right decision just with the right information. The positive thing, of course, is that 50, 56% of the world do not drink. Mm. Yeah. So the majority of the world don't drink. We just live in a culture in Australia where a lot of people do. Yeah. And so we kind of assume that, well, you know, everybody does it. Nobody around me seems to be dying from it. So, you know, it's not that bad, even though the World Health Organization and the uh, National Health and Medical Research Council are jumping up in arms about it. I'll be right. But I think there's also an element of what your normal is too, right? Like I know people who they actually can see that it's damaging, but their whole world is a whole bunch of people drinking a whole lot, a whole lot of the time, you know? And so you can be like, yes, I know I need to stop. But when that's you, it's hard to break out of that. Like just in anything, when something's your normal, even when you have the knowledge, you know? I remember one of my good friends last year, he was like having his 30th and I was like, oh, bro, let's do something. You're like, it's your 30th. And he didn't want to because he's like, I've, I've never had a birthday sober. This is my first year. I was like, even more reasons to celebrate. <laughs> but for him. For somebody who doesn't drink, I find that hilarious. Oh, no, for me, I was like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, why would you want to drink on uh, yeah. your birthday? This is the dumbest thing ever. But for him, he was like, this is really significant and I've never known how to celebrate without it. Whereas for me, it's never been a part of my world because I just don't get it. So I'm like, I'm like, that's the best way to celebrate. Um, you celebrate sober, you enjoy it so much more. Oh, 100%. But you are not impaired when you have all of that fun. Yep. But that the difference is I have a history that says it's possible. He didn't. Yes. Now, like a bit of time on, he's like, oh, yeah, I get it. But at the time I was like, bro, yeah, we can have <laughs> such a good time. But, you know, it's just normal. doesn't right. make it healthy, yeah. just uh-huh. Normal can be hard to break. And if you've got a problem with alcohol and you're struggling with it, take it to Jesus Christ. He specialises in giving people victory over addictions. Mm. And take it to him in prayer and you know, go and get the help that you need. Uh, there are lots of places where you can get help for that kind of thing. Alcoholics Anonymous being one of them. Even if you do not consider yourself to be an alcoholic, they will help you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so here in Australia, 4,000 deaths per year. So compare that with covid um, COVID's hardly killed anyone in comparison to what alcohol has this year. 70,000 hospitalizations. Uh, we've got somebody texting in, Christopher's texting in to say that he has not had a drink of alcohol since 2006. Wow, nice. Well, I haven't had a drink of alcohol since 1972. Hmm. That was when I was born. Okay. <laughs> okay, no, go you, Christopher. That's yeah, huge. absolutely. Yeah. Well done. Fantastic. Um, okay, so 4,000 deaths, 70,000 hospitalizations. Um, and, of course, it is related to 40 different medical uh, conditions. Now, this is interesting uh, because this kind of continues on the same story, the same theme here. 29% of drownings in Australia are men. Yeah. One in five of those drownings are caused by alcohol. Wow. Yeah. One in five. That's Okay, so in 10 years, in the last 10 years, we've had 2,188 men who have died as a result of drowning. You start to think about one in five of those are easily avoidable Mm. by not drinking alcohol. Uh, A third of those, interestingly enough, were in inland waters. So people are more susceptible to drowning around lakes, rivers, dams, ponds, Is that because it doesn't seem dangerous? Possibly. Mm. And also possibly because, I don't know, maybe... They fall in, I I don't know. But anyway, um, so a third of those who have drowned um, and of those who drown in inland waters, rather than one in five of them being um, caused by alcohol, it's 36% caused by alcohol. 
So alcohol and inland waters for some reason go together. Right, yeah. Interesting. Now, if you look at the age bracket, if you change the age bracket from the 20 to the 25 to 44 age bracket, it goes up to 90% of drownings are men. So men are really susceptible to drowning. That's huge. And they're drowning being caused by alcohol. Why is that? That's uh, so... Because men do silly things. Well, actually, actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. Why, why are you sitting if here I saying, think about it, why not, is that? <laughs> take alcohol out of the equation and you still have a whole bunch of people who are just just sometimes more open to ideas that aren't always the wisest. <laughs> Fun, but not the wisest. And then you chuck alcohol in and that makes it really not wise real quick. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so this is a bunch of cool stories here that I wanted to get to this morning. Uh, maybe I'll do, we'll talk about this one. On December 21, we're going to have a Christmas star, so don't miss it. It's going to be amazing. Oh, yes. Cool. It's going to be a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. I don't know what that means, but it sounds exciting. Basically, they line up with each other and create one bright, bright, <gasps> bright star in the sky. Ooh. Now, here's what else is interesting. The last time that Jupiter and Saturn was this close to each other was the 4th of March, 1226. And the time before that... Whoa! The time before that was the 17th of June... 2 BC. <laughs> this is amazing. What day? What day is it? The 21st. Uh, this will be the 21st of December. Make sure you write that one down in your diary and hopefully yeah. we have a clear sky and it doesn't rain. <gasps> yeah. It's pretty much forecast to rain right the way through summer. But anyway, um, so there are a bunch of people out there speculating. Was the 2 BC one, was that the star that the wise men followed? Well, well. Jesus was born in 4 BC because Herod the Great was still alive. Yeah, but they had uh, to... And Herod the Great did perpetrate the um, attempted massacre of the children of Bethlehem. So they're out by two years. So that star was more likely to be, you know, probably the angelic choir that welcomed baby Jesus. Yeah, hey. You know, just like uh, popped up into the sky and and away they went. Anyway, so that will be... Uh, That's really cool. Yeah, a Christmas star. Do you reckon it'll be something else interesting happening? Is it significant in other ways, do you think? I, I don't know. Um, oh, I don't know. I'm just thinking. <laughs> I, it'll be a bright light in the sky and I'm That's definitely going to be looking up to see yes. if I can have a squeeze at it. Does it have to be a particular time of night? I don't think so. Okay. I think it kind of hangs around all night. Yes. So, so we just good. get out there and find a place where it is not raining and we get a Christmas star this year. Nice. For the first time at that power since 1226 That's amazing. AD. Ah, I love everything to do with astronomy. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Well, joining us on the phone this morning, uh, as we have at uh, on Wednesdays to talk about, uh, we, we always talk about uh, mental health, emotional health and so forth, is Jennifer Skews. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, Jennifer, last week, uh, while I wasn't here, I was uh, away on uh, having a little bit of annual leave there, uh, you were talking about stress and how the brain works, how it works with the brain. Uh, This week, we're talking about the heart and brain connection, and we certainly have an amazing body. Uh, Where do we we start today's conversation? Well, maybe we can start looking at at heart-brain connection um, we didn't talk fully about the brain last week, but I think this is, is important because in psychology, we tend to focus on the brain, yet in actual fact, 
in, in science now, they're finding after several decades of studies on that connection that the heart is more powerful and more important in relationship to the brain and what the brain is doing. So they found that the heart has an incredible intelligence system. It's like it has its own inbuilt computer system um, and there are bundles of nerves from the heart to the brain and every movement or flutter of the heart signals the brain to do something. And uh, the first week we talked about the fight-flight stress response. Well, that is actually initiated by the, um, the beat of the heart. So if the heart starts racing or spiking, the brain actually turns on the adrenal system to fight or flight. The brain, it's on autopilot. It believes that there is a threat to the body or to its survival. So it actions um, an overload of adrenaline and cortisol. And it's become evident that you can't just mentally stop that process. You have to actually calm the heart down and reset the heartbeat for the brain to be able to stop pumping adrenaline and stop that fight-flight response. Um, so a lot of what I do is help people to learn how can I have a calm heart because a calm heart equals a calm brain. It sends those signals. So that's very interesting. I mean, a very, very useful function to have whenever there is real danger present. But yes. I guess the question that pops into my mind is if somebody's watching, you know, a movie and you know yes. some of those movies will really get your heart pumping. Do you That's get the same? Do. do you get the same response? And is that actually a negative when there's no real danger present? Yes, it is because the brain interprets that uh, response, even watching a movie, that there is a, a threat. But that part of the survival brain that um, deems the threat cannot discern if it's real or if it's imaginary. Um, because even if the brain thinks in terms of threat, it's going to activate that system. And this is why we come back to the burnout, because a lot of people are running on adrenaline and cortisol a lot of the time, whether it be from work stress, coming home, watching those sorts of movies, um, real-life situations. It, it, the brain just interprets everything as a threat if the heart's not right. Um, I guess my recommendation is not to watch things that are going to keep triggering that. But unfortunately, people are very addicted to adrenaline. They like that rush. They like running on adrenaline. Um, but that's, of course, where the burnout comes from. So we could actually be burning ourselves out not so much from working too hard then, but by yes. entertaining ourselves too much. Is that is that a possibility? That's a possibility. Um, this is where the work I do, particularly with women who've had a lot of trauma in their early childhood and life, and men as well, um, they do a lot of burnout and they run on adrenaline. They're so addicted to the adrenaline to survive that if they're seems to be calm moments, they create a drama to get the adrenaline going because that's what they know. That wow. It's an auto-automatic, yes. That's, so, uh, mm, that's a really intense way to live. It like, certainly is. Mm. And it sort of it, does explain why, you know, because some people, sometimes it puzzles me and it's like, why, does this, why is this person always creating drama? You know, there's no need yes. for all of this drama, but this person lives in, a, in an environment of constant drama. Yes, and that early childhood trauma shapes the personality in the direction where they, uh, it, um, I guess, skews the personality, and this is where personality disorders develop in psychology. 
Um, it's not inherent. It's due to that early experience and trauma in someone's life shapes the personality in that direction. Um, it is treatable, of course, which is part of the work I do, and it comes back to how willing the person is to be aware and to actually use the tools that I provide to help them to reset the brain and the body and it starts with the heart and it does work. I get a lot of good results uh, with women who are really sick of it, um, men as well but mainly women and uh, when they start to work with calming the heart uh, and there's many ways you can do that, um, we can maybe look at that, um, it works. People start to feel peace and calm and have control over that uh, adrenal response. There's a question that comes to my mind from research that um, I've sort of, I guess, briefly looked at over the last 12 months or, 12 months or so, and that yep. is, you know, when we talk about the fight or flight, um, mm -hmm. I've seen some research that talks about a third response being the freeze response, which is often seen, um, you know, yep. amongst rape victims and that kind of thing. Is that driven yep. by adrenaline as well? It is, and... We've got fight, flight, and if you cannot fight or flight, so someone who's trapped in a traumatic time um, where they're feeling threatened, if they go, have nowhere to run and they can't fight back, which certainly children can't easily and people in certain circumstances can't, then they go into what's called a freeze mode. Uh, the healthy is to fight, flight and flow, you know, like remove, download the adrenaline and get back to a calm response, but these people can't do that. And they actually freed, freeze the um, adrenaline, I guess it's like a memory of that experience, and every cell of the body will freeze it. So this means when um, someone can't escape, they go into freeze mode, they shut down. Um, a good example of that is public speaking, where some people are feeling threatened and they can't speak easily, it's a freeze mode. Depression, anxiety disorders are freeze modes where they can't mobilise their energy. Right. Okay, so if somebody's suffering from this adrenaline addiction, they're living, um, you know, from, mm -hmm. from one adrenaline fix to the other, whether it be through entertainment or creating drama or whatever it might be, yeah. how do they actually recognise that this is a problem to begin with? Mm. Okay. One of, one of the things is listening to the body signals. People don't. They wait until they're well into it. So part of the training I do is get them to start to recognise and it might be they notice the heart rate a bit but, or the breathing rate will change or they get sweaty palms or they start to stiffen up, the body will start to stiffen. So I get people to look at that early response and that's when you have to calm the heart down because when you do that, the nervous system will release that adrenaline energy and reset the system. So I, I work with a lot of physiology. We have been given the most amazing self-correcting body and brain that uh, God is just incredible in what he's created in us because we do have a balancing mechanism in every part of the body if we provide the right environment to do that. Mm -hmm. So what would be some good environments then for people to, you know, if they find themselves in this kind of cycle of uh, adrenaline addiction, uh, what are some, right. of the, some of the things that you would recommend that they participate in? Yes. Okay. So once they uh, recognize that the body's starting to react, that one of the tools I give them is breathing. Um, and it's, it's breathing where you actually focus on the heart. Um, and this is scientifically 
found uh, even if you put your hand on your heart area, it starts to calm it down. So if you're on your own, I get people to rub the heart area, put their hand on it because immediately I guess the heart might feel protected and it will start to slow down. And then you slowly to about the count of five, breathe in. Uh, and I get people to breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth and about the count of five out again uh, slowly. And that re- helps the um, heart to calm down. The heartbeat gets back to an even beat. And that's when um, the brain will settle and focus. Um, and we haven't really talked a lot about the brain then, but we can do that maybe next time. Sure, sure. So... Um just sort of something that pops into my head just while I'm listening to this. I have a pet dog. I think a lot of our listeners have a pet dog as well. And Absolutely. if I go outside and, you know, start moving quickly and start throwing a ball around mm-hmm. or dancing around, he will get super excited and start yipping and, you know, um, moving quickly. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, if I go outside and I sit down and I might yawn or something rather like that, breathe slowly mm-hmm. and pat him very slowly he will completely relax, start to lick yes. his lips and go into that full-on relax mode, you know, maybe roll over for a mm-hmm. belly rub. Is that, yes. what we're, is, that, is that kind of an illustration of what we're doing when we mm-hmm. place our hand over our heart and yes. we focus on just slowing our breathing down and focusing on relaxing our body? We, is it the same kind of reaction happening there? It's the same kind of reaction and we need to initiate it. But this is where, interestingly, there's a lot of studies on pet therapy and pet therapy helps the body to release good hormones as well as calm the heart down. So that's another great way. If you have pets at home or you're around pets and you're getting wound up, go and spend time with them like you were talking about. And uh, they actually get the benefit as well. They've measured the hormones in pets with that interaction and they either get happy or uh, calm down in response with the same biochemical setup as we have, which is interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it it, it certainly uh, it certainly goes to show that um, you know a dog is always man's best friend. Is it seems like God was has created some animals to just uh, to just be there with humans and to uh, and to be a huge blessing to us for no other reason than that they are our friend and just give us that unconditional love. It is. Um, other things that help calm the heart down is um, people who have a lot of faith and pray and belief in God. They cope much, much better under stress and their, their heart, they can calm the heart down a lot quicker. Um, focusing on positive things, looking at having like a gratitude list, being grateful for things, looking at what goes right versus what goes wrong. All those sorts of things help the body to keep that balance and to calm down. It's, uh, so there are lots of things. Nature is another one, being out in nature. But we don't always have the opportunity. If you're driving down the road and someone nearly runs into you, then your heart rate's up, you've got fight, flight happening, and unless you calm down quickly, you stay in that mode and you're more likely to have another problem on the road. So using that breathing technique is like a first aid kit where it's instant, a few breaths like that will calm the heart down and reset the brain to focus again. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I guess one of the key things I would suggest then, if you know, for a lot of people that are you know living in in town in one of these um, you know human filing cabinets, otherwise known as an apartment block, mm. there are usually parks you know in the area, 
Go and sit in mm-hmm. a park somewhere. I mean, we, we're blessed to live in Australia where most of our cities are near the coast. Go and sit on the beach and mm-hmm. stare out to the ocean, put the city behind you and the ocean in yeah. front of you. I, I, I don't know about you, but I know that um, for me, I find that to be incredibly therapeutic. Um, it is. Yeah, particularly mm-hmm. when I was – I remember when I was doing ministry in Sydney and we mm-hmm. were planting a church right in the CBD. Oh, yes. Every lunchtime, whenever I could, I would just go to the water and stare out across the water, and yeah. you know, just just being in the city winds you up for some reason. I'm not quite sure why, but it just does. And yeah. I used to find that was just incredibly therapeutic. It is uh, one of the things that uh, is very popular now, and I don't know. It's a bit of an aside, but if you watch Gardening Australia, they have someone on there whose house. He's got a small apartment in a city, and his house has the most amazing. Um, forest of plants and uh, pot plants and it's just incredible and it's so relaxing and soothing. He's even got a mister going and all that sort of thing helps to keep the heart calm and the brain focused. So if you're in a city living, uh, invest in propagating some decent plants and they really do help that process. It's a great thing. Fantastic. Jennifer Skews, thank you so much for joining us once again. A pleasure. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.